Morning, morning, morning. It's another early recording of the NTT20 Monday podcast. George Ellick and myself, Ali Maxwell. We just wanted to get stuck in. So much to say, so much to discuss. George, how are you getting on? Did you have a good weekend? I had a good weekend. Thank you. <laughs> Very enjoyable uh, weekend. Thanks. Had a good time with you live on Sky on Friday evening, um, which was we were beamed in. It's quite disconcerting kind of looking our faces being like put up on the screen whilst talking um and then suddenly when it when you became full screen just like looking at your face talking um it was all quite weird uh never like looking at my face talking and then uh had a really nice afternoon on saturday just yeah just chatting to kelly cates and andy reed about football on five live for three hours Hours, which was very enjoyable both great people i'm not in the industry of dishing out compliments to you but two things to say one your hair keeps getting a lot of good reviews um i don't know how you've <laughs> kept it so well uh, so so well so shapely uh, during lockdown but very impressed that was get that got a few shout outs when i tweeted the picture of us um on sky sports on Friday night, but also a magnificent few hours. I really enjoyed listening to you and Kelly and Andy. Um, it's not, I mean, although we talk about this stuff on the pod all the time, live radio is a, a different beast and I, I thought you were excellent. And, you know, what, Thanks, I, what I like most is that uh, you don't you don't tone down any opinions just because you've got a wider audience. And I think that's uh, I think that reflects very well on you. The tone of the pod so far is is joyous, but really we should be adopting an aggressive tone because that was the general mood in the championship this weekend uh, a weekend that saw six red cards in 12 games four of them straight reds and one that i'm sure we'll discuss that was not even seen by the referee but that uh, on any other day would have been a straight red card it was an, another weekend where the table was flipped up a little bit in the sense that in the bottom nine teams going into the weekend seven picked up points everyone except stoke city and huddersfield so those are the ones who will be concerned after the weekend only three of the top six picked up points but they were significant results as well Uh, just a word guys things are going to move very quickly from here not just on today's pod where we're going to rattle through a lot of games but seven rounds of championship fixtures will come in the next 23 days uh, from today, Monday, the 29th of June. We've got League One playoffs starting on Friday. Uh, so strap yourself in. We're going to try and do our best to cover it uh, in the in the time allotted to us. We've also got the League Two playoff final uh, tonight, Monday, 7.30pm, Exeter against Northampton. Please watch this over whatever Premier League offering is, uh, is, is on TV this evening because... Playoff finals are magnificent and there's just so much on the line. And I just think, especially after the semifinals, which were probably the most entertaining or some of the most entertaining games post-lockdown, I think both of these two teams deserve more eyes on them. So so watch Northampton Exeter. We're going to do a little preview of the game uh, at the very end of this podcast. It couldn't have been timed more awkwardly for us, basically, given that the pod only goes out a few hours before. And then we're going to release a bonus pod, 10, 15 minutes tomorrow morning, Tuesday, reviewing the League Two playoff final like we did with the playoff finals last year. Sadly, this year, we cannot be at Wembley for them. Let's start at the top of the championship where we were very excited pre-weekend because the top four teams all played each other. That doesn't happen very often. In the end, George Fourth beat first, that was Brentford beating West Brom 1-0 on Friday night. And second beat third, that was Leeds beating Fulham on Saturday 
mid-afternoon. And now all of those teams are in different positions. Leeds top on 74, West Brom second on 71, Brentford third on 66, and Fulham are now fifth on 64, with Nottingham Forest having gone above them on Sunday. We're going to get into all of the notable games, but let's start with the first of the weekend. Friday night, Brentford won, West Brom nil. More praise for you through gritted teeth. It went exactly how you called it. On the betting show, you predicted the correct score. <laughs> you, cor- you, you corrected unders on the goals. A narrow Brentford win. Uh, well done. How did you enjoy watching this game? What have you got to say about it? I thought you were say, how did you do it? Um, did I enjoy watching the game as somebody who backed 1-0? And, you know, Brentford going ahead quite early on in the game. I didn't really enjoy it that much. But uh, in terms of a, of a spectacle, I think it just kind of told us what we already know about this Brentford side. Uh, where they rightly get plaudits for the work they do going forward. They rightly have a couple of attacking players uh, in, you know, particularly Ben Rama and uh, and Watkins, but also in Bomo, who obviously was back in the in the squad. Tarek Fossey's had a very good start to life at Brentford as well. But the the key to them, and I think what sets them apart, is just they are so different to the to the previous iterations of this Brentford side that we've seen in the past, where they they win. They know how to see out, see games out. They are so solid at the back. They have defenders in Pinnock and Janssen who are everything that Brentford have lacked in the past. They, you know, they stand up to the challenge of holding on to a lead. They relish the physical battles as well as being able to play um, with the ball on the floor. Like they were dominant and you know kept West Brom a West Brom side who also have a lot of attacking talent as well, but at arm's length, protecting a lead for the majority of the game. Um, it's it's what makes them, in my opinion, you know, they, they, they've obviously put themselves in with a chance of getting into that top two, even if it's still an unlikely, you know, let's not overplay this. It's still the overwhelming likelihood is that it'll be Leeds and West Brom, West Brom who finish in the top two, but Brentford have certainly given themselves a chance. But it's they, they look to me now like a, a team kind of tailor-made for the playoffs, which is not something we could have said about them before. I, I think West Brom is still definitely the likely team to get promoted here. And that's despite i mean i personally think that brentford are a better side i think right now you know as we basically saw on saturday that's as close as you're going to get to a neutral venue i think that they are marginally better but but yeah i mean it's still a decent enough gap west brom still have some very very winnable games coming up so um yeah i still would say that they are the more likely um but brentford have done well to give themselves a chance i think it was i think it was norgard before the game was, was interviewed on sky and was asked, you know, do you do you reckon you can you can get yourself into the top two? And he said, well, it's going to take a meltdown from West Brom, but we hope that starts tonight. So, <laughs> fighting talk early on, and uh, yeah, and they've, they've given themselves. I mean, to, for Brentford to come through two games, one away at Fulham and one at home to West Brom, West Brom, on the back of this break. I mean, and to get six points, concede no goals is is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sends a pretty big statement out to West Brom that, you know, we're we're going to be picking up points. So if you want to get promoted, we're not going to help you out here. You, you're going to have to do your bit because if you don't, we're going to be ready to come past, come past you. Yeah, little bits of, of fortune in those games, which, uh, you know, which you're on either side of every now and again in football. Of course, Deckard Overeed hit the post or the bar rather in that Fulham game at 0-0. Zahor hit the bar in this game at 1-0. But it was disappointing how little West Brom 
created despite being 1-0 down for the majority of this game. Um, I suppose credit, as you've mentioned, goes to the Brentford defence. Pinnock stood out, but at different times this season, it's been Janssen putting in those sorts of performances. Raya has been very, very solid for the most part of this season and has been a very, very good signing. Not blooper-free, of course, over the course of the campaign, but which championship goalkeeper ever is, to be honest. For West Brom... It, it it was not a horrendous performance, but I guess it was a, a, a concerning result. Um, I said I wasn't that worried after last weekend when they were the dominant side against Birmingham, but couldn't convert their chances and couldn't convert a lot of good situations into actual clear-cut chances. Uh, against Brentford, they, they had fewer good situations and, and really didn't create a huge amount other than that Zahor shot from, from the edge of the box that hit the bar. They haven't scored in the league for what is now quite a concerning amount of time. They beat Preston 2-0 um, and both of the goals are in the first half. Uh, since that game, uh, they lost 1-0 against Wigan at home. They drew 0-0 at Swansea. They drew 0-0 with Birmingham, of course, and they drew and they lost 1-0 on the weekend. So it's, it's basically four and a half games without a goal now. Of course, if you look at the amount of chances they've created in that time, you'd say they've, you know, they, they've probably created about two or three expected goals worth that might be a little harsh to say they can't score, but that is something that they have to work out in the next few weeks, that's for sure. Uh, Leeds went above them. They've really flip-flopped all season, haven't they? But it was a, a Leeds game against Fulham where we previewed it and said, look, some teams have, have, have played against Leeds using a blueprint which involves uh, a lot of concentration, a lot of defensive solidity and a lot of luck and being able to create one or two chances on the counter-attack and taking those chances. It's a it's a tricky blueprint to follow. And we questioned whether Fulham and the makeup of that side really lent itself to that. In the end, they, they took a different blueprint. In the first half, it looked for, for a period like Fulham were the better side, were giving Leeds a bit of a tough time. But in the end, by the final whistle, there wasn't a huge amount positive to say about Fulham. And Leeds were, well, Leeds were fulfilling what they always threatened to fulfil, which is, Actually, when they finish their chances, they are a very, very good side in this division. Top of the league again. Top of the league again, as you say. A difficult one, this, for Fulham. Because, as you mentioned, there at times during this game, they looked like they were really taking the game to Leeds. But I guess what we don't normally see, especially in the Championship this season, we don't really see teams taking the game to Leeds. And I, I guess, in a, in a funny way, rolling that dice getting some reward from it in terms of, of chances, but not putting those chances away probably was the reason for Fulham getting so well beat here because they were so open and susceptible to the counter-attack. Yeah, you can imagine Bielsa seeing a team pressing high and wanting yeah. possession in Fulham's heart, in Leeds's half and licking his lips and thinking, wow, this is what exactly. we want and we never get this. Uh, we, we don't see Leeds get that space in behind ever really, unless late on in games when teams are trying to, trying to break them down. Um, Tactical naivety, you'd have to say, though, from Scott Parker. I mean, it could have come off. I think if you'd have said that Parker's tactics were wrong at halftime, it would have raised a few eyebrows because they were very much in the game at that stage and you could see them coming back into it. But looking back at it now, yeah, I mean, taking on, trying try, trying to keep possession in the in a Marcelo Bielsa, uh, against the Marcelo Bielsa team in their half is not, not particularly clever given the way that they can exploit space in behind. But, I mean, I want to talk about the flashpoint. <clears throat> because, I mean, yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, after a minute and 30 seconds, Ben White heads the ball away and Alexander Mitrovic kind of runs across him and very clearly and obviously raises an elbow and elbows, um, elbows him in the side of the face, kind of on his cheek. 
and it is like it's it's so bad it's i i can't genuinely if they retrospectively ban him for three matches i personally don't think that's enough i don't i think you have to that behaviour on a football pitch, you just have to take a stance against it. Like, I can't believe there hasn't been more made. I mean, I know that it's been a talking point, but I can't believe more hasn't been made of it. That you've got, irrespective of who he is and his reputation that precedes him, you've got a footballer a minute and a half into a game of football deliberately elbowing another young footballer in the face. Uh, and I just, yeah, I mean, I was just basically taken aback when I saw it. I mean, I'm sure Fulham fans will say, like, oh, these, oh, these things happen. I don't really think they do. I haven't seen, especially these days when you've got, when you know that, especially during uh, this time where all the games are being televised, and that one was actually live on Sky. Like, you know you're going to get away with something that brazen and something that, that deliberate. Um, and I, you know, taking away any impartiality, I hope he gets the book thrown at him. I hope he gets banned for a very long time because he deserves to have to pay for the for, for his action. And in turn, he should have to let his football club down because you just can't do that it's an interesting time to be talking about this as well given that you very rarely see anything resembling a punch being thrown on a football pitch and we had two really in the championship elsewhere this weekend with Garrick of Swansea having a swipe at James Collins punch does seem like a strong word for it and the same for what Matt Miazga did to Tom Lawrence they were definitely I'm going to put them in the jab category rather than the punch because punch (laughs) punch to me sort of it it hints at a at a real swing rather than a a sort of short arm jab. But I just think it's going to be blanket three game bans across the board. So it's uh, I see I see your stance. I just I just don't see anything particular extra coming towards Mitro. Um, Let us know what you guys think about about what George has been saying there. I think it's quite an interesting topic and it just seems quite relevant after this weekend because it was a very, very angry uh, weekend in the championship. Uh, From a footballing perspective, it means Mitro will, we think, be banned for three games at least. Um, A good time to test a theory that's been hinted at a couple of times as to whether Fulham could be a better overall football team playing playing with a, a different striker or a different profile of a striker up front whether it might allow them to be a little more dangerous in transition whether they might look a little bit more mobile no doubting the fact that within the penalty box and when it comes to converting chances Mitrovic is is as good as there is in the league but there has been that hint overall that to be a better team could they move forward in a different way whether that's Reed up front who clearly doesn't have the physical presence but certainly has the the mobility and the energy uh, and and to drift into to more dangerous areas and dare I say it maybe bring the best out of Cavalero and Knockart um who who don't always seem to well who just don't seem to play particularly well uh, consistently for this Fulham side so that's going to be quite interesting to watch do you think that Fulham are you know top 6 is guaranteed in your opinion um <sighs> I, I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think it's exceptionally likely that they make the playoffs. Uh, I, I heard you on Five Live just ask the question, or just sort of raise the, the topic, raise the alarm, shall we say. But for me, seven points is a very, very strong gap at this stage with seven games to go. What, what do you think? I'm, I'm not convinced. Um, and, and it might be very knee-jerk. And they might go and beat QPR 4-0 tomorrow evening because QPR are certainly one of those teams who haven't really looked like their former selves since the break. Um, but you know, in the same way, I guess we saw Birmingham's motiv- motivation. Um, yeah, I have a feeling QPR will be quite keen, probably to to put one over Fulham on uh, on Tuesday night. But I no, I I don't. I think we're seeing um, some big 
issues with Fulham at the moment. You know, I've never really been a fan of Scott Parker this season. I think he is often bailed out by by Mitrovic, who might miss the next three games. Uh, of those three games, though I assume maybe tomorrow night might come too early, but of those three games, I mean, they've got two very winnable ones coming up now against against QPR and then at home to Birmingham. But after that, it gets tough. After that, they go to Forest. They then host Cardiff, which if Cardiff are still knocking around, will be a massive game. They then go to West Brom, who you'd expect will probably be needing that to, to, to get themselves up into the, uh, into the top. And then Sheffield Wednesday and Wigan to finish. Wigan, the, the form team of the whole league, and, and Wednesday start starting with uh, with four points then for the next two games back. I mean, it's going to be, again, similar to what I said about Brentford and West Brom. Obviously, it's very, very likely, you know, 90% chance likely that Fulham are going to make the top six, probably more than that. But things can change very quickly, as we know here. And I don't think that Fulham are currently one of the best sides in the, in the division. Um, and their confidence is going to have taken a big old knock in the last couple of games as well. So if they, do, if they don't win tomorrow and you've got one of that chasing pack, Preston, Derby, Blackburn, one of those guys picking up three points, then that seven-point gap very, very quickly becomes much smaller. You know, it basically gets chopped in, in nearly half. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not... I wouldn't be having a bet on Fulham to finish in the top six. That's all I'll say. I mean, it's going to be massively dependent on what happens with, with Mitrovic. But, um, yeah, I'm not necessarily convinced that Parker has enough about him to um, to turn this around without the, the, the star man uh, in his, uh, well, without the star man being available to him. Just to give credit to, to Ben White, who not only, you know, had an elbow in the face after two minutes, but then uh, instead of reacting negatively or, or looking shaken, just performed about as well against Mitrovic as you can ask any championship defender. In fact, a lot better than that. Uh, you know, there are a few aerial duels that Mitro won. That is White's sort of weakness, if you will. It's not really his fault. He's just, he's he hasn't got much. He hasn't got the height and physicality of other central defenders in this division. But basically in every other facet, he's, he's showing himself to be the best centre-back at this level. And, uh, you know, watching him in the next two years is going to be absolutely fascinating. Not only because he's Brighton's player, and they're going to surely want to to get him involved next season, but also all the rumours uh, linking him to some of the biggest clubs in England as well. And it'll be fascinating to see how he maps out the next few years of his career and uh, and where he ends up in a couple of years because it was fantastic. Pablo, of course, is back from injury off the bench and uh, provided a magnificent assist, the sort of pass that not many at this level can produce. Uh, and, a, and a word for Patrick Bamford, who uh, who produced a lovely finish early on in this game to put Leeds 1-0 up. Uh, it, was, um, it was a classic Leeds sort of transition attack down the right-hand side. Fulham's left causing problems for them again defensively. Um, and uh, Arta giving the ball away. The cutback, which has become something of a Leeds calling card, which we also saw for Alioski's goal. When they've got defences on the turn and charging back towards their own goal, uh, that cutback is so, so effective because it's so difficult when you're running full tilt as a defender to, to put the brakes on. As you could see in those two goals, it, it proved very effective. Let's talk about the team that leapt over Fulham uh, into fourth place, Nottingham Forest. They're now on the same points, so they've both got the same gap, both to the top two, seven points with seven games to go, and also to seventh place Preston and eighth place Derby seven points uh, who are just outside of the playoffs. My first note here just says glorious grabbing. Mm. You know, uh, we've talked a lot about Mitro and we've talked a lot about Watkins over the last few weeks, the two top goal scorers in the league. Uh, not too far behind them. Uh, the third best goal scorer in this division, undoubtedly, uh, is Lewis Grabben. And that first goal, 
the timing of the volley over the heads of defenders was magnificent uh, and slotting a one-on-one as well. It was a, it was a, it was Lewis Graben distilled into 90 minutes, I thought, but a, a positive result in general, George, for, for Forrest, um, who didn't perform that well at Sheffield Wednesday last week, coming into this game, which is the sort of game that's been a bit of a banana skin for them this season. So impressive in so many of the games against teams above them. It's the home games against teams down the bottom where they haven't always looked like a, a dominant team, a top, top team at the level. Um, but they made fairly light work of, uh, of Huddersfield on Sunday, which is a great sign for Sabri Lamucci, who was uh, celebrating a year in charge of, of Forest. What did you think about this one? Yeah, big win. Um, I think we can say that Nottingham Forest are firmly on, on the radar. Um, they are, you know, they, they weren't very impressive at Hillsborough the week before. They weren't in very good form before the break in football. Coming up against the Huddersfield team, who out of nowhere suddenly found themselves in the relegation zone um, with, with you know, a lot to play for. Um, you know, even and even their position, you could probably argue, is a false one given the improved performances under under the under the Cowleys. So to dispatch them as they did and um, to see key players namely Lolly and Graben really kind of grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck and, and carrying them through <laughs> grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck yes <laughs> I do listen I do listen to you I got I got so much stick last week for not reacting enough to you saying an IU for an IU and now I thought to myself right I'm gonna hang on his every word this week to try and spot the little easter eggs that he leaves in I love that you. Uh, I love. That I didn't know why you said it either. But um, yeah, so three one, three one victory is massive. And you know, as I was saying a second ago about Fulham, if Forest lose this game, I'd have put them very much in the category of not safe in this top six race. You still probably, for the same reasons as Fulham, still can't. But at the same time, the performance and the manner of the victory and the way that they, um, you know, just saw off. Um, a, a side who we know can be very hard to break down at times under the Cowleys it doesn't always seem to be the case with a lot to play for um, was was big and, and for Huddersfield it's now kind of getting into desperation times yeah. I, I just I, I just find the fascinating thing about the, rele- the relegation battle is that you have got let's say Borough fans Hull fans sorry not Hull fans Borough fans Stoke fans Huddersfield fans who for, for three months from March until June basically thought to themselves like season's probably over. Like we probably need what, like six points and then we're going to be safe. And two games in Huddersfield find themselves in 22nd, Stoke in 20th and Borough with the new manager in 19th, albeit, you know, in a much better position than they were in before the thing. It's just interesting how quickly things change. And that's why when we're talking about these teams at the top of the table, the, the Forests and the Fulhams and things, it's never as easy just to look at a points gap and think like that's quite a lot looking at the mass, how many wins they need because a couple of bad results and so quickly you get swallowed up. So, um, yeah, really, I mean, personally, I would be very disappointed for the Cowleys if they end up getting relegated with the Huddersfield side because... Um, I think they've done a lot of good, but at the moment they look a shadow of, of the team that they were a couple of months ago, and you know they're just going to be hoping that from from here on in for the what is it seven games left they get more points than Hull because it, at the moment it just looks like a bit of a shootout. The good news for them, and as a friend of the pod Danny Jameson tweeted. Uh, on the weekend being in the bottom three of the championship appears to turn you into brazil 1970 (laughs) Um, so far in the two weeks since football returned 
Bottom three teams have won four and drawn two games. That's a win and a draw each for, for Luton and Barnsley. Uh, a win for Charlton last week, of course. And then Borough this week, who had taken their spot. So your move, Huddersfield, in midweek. I wanted to shout out Sammy Amiobi as well. Um, partly, I, I just feel the need to put this on record. I remember vividly last summer when we looked at some of the players that Forrest was signing, like the, um, some of the George Mendes Portuguese links. Uh, coming to the fore like they did with Wolves a few years ago with Silva and players like that. I remember seeing the double signing of of Albert Adoma and Sami Amiobi and sort of having a bit of a laugh and saying, I'm, I, I don't really understand that. It doesn't really fit, it doesn't really fit the, the, the philosophy, if you will, and, I, and I'm not sure they're going to have much impact. Now, 50% of that was correct. <laughs> Adoma is obviously not even at the club anymore. He's on loan at Cardiff. But a shout out to Sammy Amiobi because he's really impressed me at times this season. He, you know, like a lot of wide players at this level, he's not fully on it all the time. But he's a really skillful player. He should have scored on, in this game. He hit the post with a, with a great chance at nil nil. But I just wanted to um, sort of right my wrongs and say I think he's been a good contributor for them. And I and I think looking back, I would probably marking him down unfairly because the last two years of his career he was at this terrible Bolton side where you know who would want to be a, a wide player in a, in a team like that who can barely who can barely get the ball into the final third but a, a clever pickup from Forrest and I was glad to see his contract was extended so shout out Sammy Amiobi OBE interestingly um his name came up in a conversation I had last week with Gary O'Neill um nice. where for something five yards related I was speaking to Gary last week and we were talking about um, a little kind of sneak preview into what will be coming. We were talking about um, different players' mentalities, young players' mentalities. And he was talking about how you get some young players who um, are driven by, including himself, driven by kind of a fear of failure and who get very nervous and that's their driving force. And he actually name-checked a couple of players, but I'm not going to say who. But he said on the other side, you have players who are just supremely self-confident. And he said who he played with Sammy Amiobi at Bolton. And he said Amiobi was one of those players who just could never really be flustered, just had complete faith in his own ability, had complete faith in what he wanted to do, knew that he would be able to do it. And that was what kind of set him apart from other players as well. So, and, and I guess given the circumstances of Amiobi's arrival, I mean, it, it seemed like a bit of a weird signing when he arrived. He was signed by Martin O'Neill rather than Lamucci. I don't think anybody really expected him to have this kind of impact stepping up from what was, you know, not a particularly successful time, at, well, not a successful team at Bolton, I should say, rather than time individually. And so maybe that's something to do with it. You know, he's just unfazed, get, goes about his business, has confidence in his own ability. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I've, he's been one of the surprises of the season. Just to go back to Sabri Lamucci, a year in charge. And uh, as you guys know, we're sponsored by The Athletic. So we always like to pick our favourite of the athletic articles on a Monday to discuss on this podcast. Uh, and this week, I think a writer that we, we haven't spoken about before in Daniel Taylor, because... As one of uh, the sort of uh, star men, I suppose, on the athletic site, award-winning journalist Daniel Taylor, just a fabulous writer, um, he is a Forest fan. And because Forest are covered by Paul Taylor, no relation, as far as I know, um, he doesn't, or he hasn't been doing a huge amount of Forest writing this season. But he got the nod for the one-year anniversary of Sabri Lamucci piece. Uh, it's on the site at the moment. Modern, respected and genuinely liked Sabri Lamucci's first year at Forest. This is the sort of thing where, you know, it's a really in-depth piece. And I think something that can't be understood necessarily by neutrals as much as by Forest fans is the significance of having a manager 
who manages the club for a season and isn't binned off at the end of it or halfway I can't, through. I just can't believe that's that stat, that there's no manager start and finish the same season since 10-11. That is... I know. I mean, the way not to run a football club, that, I mean, that is, that's a decade, a decade when a manager hasn't lasted a season. Sometimes in the athletic, it's, it's the bits that basically have no relevance to the story that I like the most. So there's a there's, there's a bit about how when Lamucci came in, he made he, he basically made his office really basic because he just wanted it to be a place of work. He didn't want it to look flashy, so he had to change it because Ito Karanka had left it as this really plush, like really smart office. Um, and the, the bit that I liked the most was. Karanka had filled his office with expensive furniture and before his fallout with the club, liked to relax by lighting a scented candle and putting on Ibiza chill-out classics. I mean, that's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> what I want to know about this, though, is that there was there was a manager between Karanka and Lamucci and Martin O'Neill. So do you reckon O'Neill was like, yeah, I'll have a bit of this. And he just cracked on with the uh, with the candles and cracked on with the Ibiza nexus. <laughs> I reckon he gave the candles and the and the tunes a go. I reckon O'Neill spent a bit more time out on the training pitch, you know, rolling his sleeves up and and uh, not as it was inspiring uh, this group of footballers. There's also a bit about Philippe Montagnier that I did not know, which is that uh, at the end of his time in charge, he was he suffered the public ordeal of his players agreeing between themselves to ditch his tactics and line up their own way during an FA Cup defeat at Wigan Athletic. I mean that is the the ultimate vote of no confidence isn't it um uh, unbelievable what, what what sort of what else stood out to you uh, from this piece it's 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 not just about lamucci but it goes into the newish owners of forest and the way that they have well moved the club into the 21st century after a fairly disastrous uh, al hasawi regime yeah i thought it was interesting the discussion about lamucci's history not necessarily getting on with senior pros or key players um daniel talks about how when he managed ivory coast at the world cup he benched drogba for two of the three group games uh, and drogba was was pretty scathing of, of lamucci in his autobiography talks about how he fell out with hatem ben Arfa as well at ren and you know i guess falling out with the 36 year old didier drogba who probably thought he was the manager isn't that difficult to understand and, and i think hatem ben Arfa clearly is a difficult player to manage as we've seen over here in the past as well. But that just seems quite at odds with the Lamucci that we've seen. He's been so kind of measured in, in his management of certain key players. Like we've seen so many times him praising um, Ben Watson, him praising uh, Michael Dawson, kind of all the senior pros. He's really kept close to him. Then you've got Graben, who he talks about, you know, almost like a son, you mm. know, the way he's, he's talks about him with such effusive praise. Joe Lolly's game has gone up to another level this season as well. So, yeah, it's, I wonder if with Lamucci, you know, he's 48 years old. He hasn't done much club management um, for, for a manager of that age. Uh, so I wonder if it's just him developing as a manager, developing as, as a person, the way that you know, almost learning from those previous experiences and therefore coming into this job, ensuring it didn't happen again and ensuring that the senior pros were his biggest aides oh. rather than um, the people he was coming up against. Because clearly, given what Daniel says about Martin O'Neill, this was a team and was a set of players who, if they didn't like you, um, you know, would, would quite clearly make that known. So, yeah, all credit to him for that. I um, I knew he was a good player slightly before my time. His France international career was sort of uh, 96 time, just before they got really, really good, basically. Um, but I hadn't realised that he played at Parma under Arago Saki, which, you know, makes 
makes the strong defensive structure that Forest have. Uh, it, it, it explains that better than than it did before. Put it that way. Uh, and lastly, on this, he is a George Mendes client. Uh, we've obviously seen hints of uh, Mendes influence in the transfer business over the last year or two. Um, they've got to be a contender to do a Wolves this summer. I don't know the ins and outs of where they are with FFP off the top of my head as I talk. Um, they've got a few assets in Matty Cash, who we know is very highly sought after from higher levels. Um, but they've, they've got to be, even though some of the players they have brought in have not exactly become absolute standout contributors for this team. Um, and they have struggled at times to get some of those flair players, shall we say, uh, into this side. They've got to be a, a contender to to make a leap like Wolves if they don't go up uh, through the playoffs this season. That'll be something to watch. Um, also, the the right time to mention now that if you haven't signed up to The Athletic and you'd like to read this Daniel Taylor, Sabri Lamucci, Angelos Marinakis, Nottingham Forest uh, epic piece, theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. That is the place to go. You'll get a seven-day free trial. You'll also get 50% off going forward. So you'll get your athletic subscription for a year uh, at just £2.50 a month. So give that a go today, theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. Neil Warnock, first time we've mentioned his name on this podcast, which is surprising quite far through already, but uh, he's in the dugout with Middlesbrough at Stoke, uh, and they win 2-0 and the first goal comes from a set piece and I feel like we've spoken about this man more than anyone else in the last week or so but you were certainly uh, going big pro Warnock on uh, on Five Live on the weekend and, and you were backed up by the result here. Yeah, which was good given I had a quite an emotional um, plea for things to get sorted out at Hull and then five minutes later they 2-0 up. Um, it's... Yeah, it was, it was great to see um, a return to to some form for Borough, and it just it's just remarkable how quickly he can seem to get a reaction out of his players on the pitch. Um, I'm trying to think who the reporter was at the game for Five Live on Saturday, but he was talking. About, I think it was. Um, I think it was Pat, Pat Murphy. Murphy. Yeah, yeah, it was Pat Murphy, and Pat Murphy was talking about how before the game started, so this wasn't any kind of um, after timing. Was saying that basically Warnock walked in the door on Tuesday morning and just said set pieces now we are doing set pieces drill after set pieces drill and they go one up after not very long through a set piece and you just feel like it's, it's just simplifying the game you know just compare that for a second and I know we've got to stop talking about it at some stage but compare that for a second with Jonathan Woodgate's first interview when he took over the club you've got one manager coming in being like right back to basics set pieces let's get our marginal gains you've got another one who walks in the door having taken over half an hour ago from a Tony Pulis side saying we're going to play great football we're going to pass it around the back we're going to do all this and all that like it's no surprise is it that the inexperienced manager in his first job couldn't <laughs> make that a success and then you've got a 71 year old who has basically been a success in every job he's ever taken except for one spell at Crystal Palace mm coming in and just saying like, right, we need to win games of football to stay up. This is how we're going to do it. Um, on this podcast last week with you, I said that I feared for the young players that had come through at Borough. Um, that was completely wrong of me. I did more research in the in the week and Warnock's record bringing through young talent, if they're good enough, is actually pretty good. And it was good to see Spence starting um, mm -hmm. on uh, on Saturday. But it's it's one result at the end of the day. It's one result, and it's a big result because it's against a team who they are up against for for relegation. 
And I guess there's every chance that, you know, it could be an isolation and the form could dip again. But they looked very, very different straight away, which, um, which again, is just testament to the good job that he's that he consistently seems to do. Uh, pass completion percentage of Middlesbrough this weekend was 47. I would have been disappointed oh. if it was above 50. Um, <laughs> so well done. I also think because we, we, we pride ourselves on on looking past the, the major narratives to see if there's anything else interesting to say. And I want to point out that uh, they gave up around two expected goals in this game. Uh, and the goalkeeper Stojanovic should be getting a little bonus from Neil Warnock uh, on Monday morning because he is the reason why we're talking about how it was inevitable that this was going to happen and they were always going to win because actually on balance of play, chances created. Uh, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, I know that game state can often have an impact and Borough were ahead early and their game plan was to defend that lead. But Stojanovic made six saves, including one with his nutsack. And I think that... Uh, <laughs> Wow. I think we should give him some credit um, because, they're, they're, look, as you would always say, and this is one game, I'm not saying this is going to be the case, but let's not pretend this was a defensive masterclass. If they keep giving up 2xG per game, they're probably not going to win 2 nil every game. So um, that's just worth flagging up. Uh, Rudy so just... Go on. Yeah, I was going to say, but maybe a bit of cause and effect though as well, where, you know, the... the the more clean sheets that they keep and, and the more results they get like this, it's probably more likely that they're going to get more solid, I, I agree, guess. I agree with that. I agree with that. But sometimes you need a bit of luck as well. You need a goalkeeper in very good form. Um, great scenes with Rudy just with, dead. With his, with his nutsack. Yeah. Great scenes <laughs> with Rudy just dead, who uh, Warnock spoke to. And Warnock said, look, we'd love you to play these last few games. Um, any interest in in signing a, a small extension so that you can represent us, help us stay up. Rudy Justed said, ah, no, sorry, boss. Uh, I don't I don't really want to play, um, you know, for the same reasons as, as many other players. And Warnock said, uh, I cleared him off. I just cleared him off. I said, okay, d- don't, don't bother coming in. Uh, and, and as Warnock tells the story, Justed was sort of, oh, no, no, but, you know, I, I, I need to come, I, I need to still, like, come in and train. You know, I'm under contract. No, no, just don't come in. I mean... Leave. Justed must have been a bit taken aback, but... Suddenly you're driving home and you think, hold on, I can just, I got a couple of weeks of uh, football manager now, just paid leave. <laughs> um, good stuff there. Uh, let's move on. We had a big game uh, sort of in the playoff picture. Preston was sixth and Cardiff was seventh. They were on the same points. There's now three points between them because Cardiff left deep there with a 3-1 win. All three points. This was the on Sky early game on Saturday. And it was quite an even game for, for 75 minutes or so. Preston came out of the traps pretty quickly and they had a few openings that they had carved out. And it made me think, yeah, Preston, they, they look like they're on it today. And at some point, one's going to fall for them and they're, they're going to go ahead. But almost as quickly as they came out of the traps, they, they regressed. And then it became quite an even game. Uh, until about 75 minutes gone, when it was 1-1, uh, Preston having come back impressively, having gone behind. And it's a familiar theme for both teams now, a positive for Cardiff and a negative for Preston, is when the substitutions start getting made, uh, Cardiff getting stronger, Preston getting weaker. Uh, the second goal for Cardiff, scored by Mendes Lang, set up by Tomlin. Both of them had come on as a sub. Uh, and Preston just so obviously get weaker when their replacement players come off the bench. It's a, it's a thin squad and up top, especially when it comes to strikers uh, and players with that poacher's instinct. That is where they're, they're clearly lacking. Now, I have some sympathy. It's not easy to buy goal scorers at this level. If you look at the goal scoring stats, there aren't actually that many really good goal scorers at this level. So I, I don't necessarily share the anger of Preston fans at, 
oh, we, we knew this was always a problem and we should have sorted it because it's really tough to, to buy yourself or get yourself a striker who can score even 15 goals at this level. But it is clearly such an issue for them. And they're not creating enough outside of that to, to sort of cover up the lack of a goal-scoring number nine. I think they've only six teams have scored fewer goals than them in open play. At the start of the season, they were doing very well. It was pointed out at the time that they had a bit of a bizarre quirk where they were just getting so many penalties. They've scored 10 pens in the league this season. Uh, only three of the other 23 teams have scored more than five. Uh, so that shows you know, how much of an advantage mm-hmm. they were getting in, in that sense. But I think after all that, you just have to point out that Cardiff, since Neil Harris took charge, uh, third in the league. The third best team since Harris took charge. And... The best record with subs in the league. 15 goals from substitutes this season. Uh, they pulled away at the end and they were very deserving winners. They're now in sixth spot, George. How solid do they look for a playoff spot? Yeah, pretty solid. Pretty solid, you'd have to say. Because when you're looking at that playoff picture, <clears throat> I mean, again, I, I do think they're feasibly now three spots. I mean, I think Forrest and Fulham are obviously very likely to get there, but it's not quite as cut and dry as there being a chase of that sixth position anymore, I wouldn't say. Um, but in Cardiff's case, it, it, you know, it likely is. They've got to hold on to that. Um, it's very difficult, for the reasons you mentioned, to see Preston's form turn around. Um, I sent you a text on Saturday asking if we could start calling Alex Neal Streaky Neal, and the reply the reply was no, um, which is a shame because he is another manager who seems to be pretty boom or bust, and at the moment it's definitely uh, in the midst of a run of bust. Uh, Derby are clearly the the team who I think um, have the capabilities of really shooting up the table and continuing to do so, but but beneath that, I mean Bristol City have basically gone I mean talking of streaky Neil it's, it is streaky Lee and, and this bad streak has, has effectively killed their season um, anyone who wants to go back and listen to the hot take debate from going up going down is welcome to from a couple of months ago surely if, um, just to stop you there surely if we're talking about him being streaky Lee Johnson and then being on an extended bad streak surely the logic is Bristol City are about to somehow win five games in a row and get back into the playoff places, even though it goes it, in, it goes against basically everything we think about football. Yes, although I would say there was kind of a, a reason for this streak where they weren't very good when they were winning and they're still not very good, but they're now losing because it's because it's natural variance. Um, and then you, so then you're looking at Blackburn, Swansea, your Millwall to catch up. And you know we we've been having this discuss, discussion on another WhatsApp group, and it just seems quite difficult to imagine they're going to put on put together a run of form that could see them do it. Although having said that, both Millwall and Blackburn <clears throat> have gone on kind of long winning runs re- fairly recently. Whether that's a reason they'll do so again, I'm not entirely sure. Probably not. So I think Cardiff looked pretty solid there. It's massive recency bias as well to say they will because they've just put in two very good... Po- well, they've got two very good wins. I'm not necessarily calling the, the Leeds performance a very good performance, even though they got what was a very, very impressive victory. And at times against Preston as well, Preston did look the better side and the more likely winners, I would say, um, especially in the first half. But they put themselves in a great position. And as you mentioned, the the run of form dates back far far before this. And under Neil Harris, they've been, you know, they've been very good indeed. So yeah, again, likely, likely top six, but it, you know, a couple of bad results here or there, and then they're going to find themselves out of the top six very quickly. I feel like a broken record today. Well, I just think there's a group of teams and Cardiff and Preston represent them well who play 
almost every game just on the margins, such tight margins. And at the beginning of the season, Preston were coming out on the right side of those marginal games. And currently, Cardiff City are coming out on the right side of those marginal games. And you might say that game management plays a big part here, and it, and it does when teams are in good form. Uh, and teams who are in poor form often look like they're not managing games so well. But, you know, as you say, it was quite close. The, the, the reaction from Preston fans was really negative to this. They are very disillusioned with the way that they have dropped out of the playoff places. I think it's a classic, one of those that you talk about a fair bit, which is like almost being up there early on in the season where they were straining every sinew to be up there. It feels harsh to then really react negatively to to dropping down a few places and basically, um, what's the right word, sort of punishing them for their own success early on. But you can see why it would be fr- frustrating, certainly in the current form. Uh, Curtis Nelson and Sean Morrison getting a lot of love from Cardiff fans and from mutual fans as well at the heart of that Cardiff defence. Um, as you say, beating Leeds and following it up with this win. Uh, not many teams play Leeds uh, and then win their next game. That has been a feature of this season. So congrats to Cardiff. Uh, you love Derby. They beat Reading 2-1. You got about a million likes on Twitter for uh, what you described as a beg tweet about Wayne Rooney. I don't really know what that meant, but the results were, were there for all to see. Um, what do you have to say for, for yourself and your new favourite team in the championship, uh, Philip Koku and Wayne Rooney's Derby County? Yeah, I'm smitten. Uh, no, it's good. It's good for them to be. No, I just, I just think it's a great story. I just love the fact that we've got one of England's greatest ever, just pulling strings for a derby side with a ex Barcelona and Netherlands legend managing them, and you've got this a smattering of young talent around it. I just think it's, it's really fun, and it's kind of as a neutral, it's a, it's a club that is steeped with romance uh, from times gone by and I think it's just a great story I mean this is you and I the reason we do this is because we love EFL football and quite often we will be fairly down on certain teams when they're doing things that we don't like but you know there, there are obviously some moral questions about the funding of the of the Wayne Rooney um, signing which I am very happy to admit and also say that I just don't really care because at the end of the day as a football team having a former England captain, England's top ever goal scorer, former Champions League winner, former Premier League winner, you know, one of the most decorated players in the game in our league, doing these things for a big club surrounded by young players. If, if you're not enjoying that as a neutral fan, then then I don't really know what you can enjoy. Big club, really, really big club. Um, this game was... Massive, massive club. I can't believe you just said that. Um, just pure begging. You can't beg for likes on a podcast. No one's going to no one's gonna RT your rant there. I'm certainly not putting it on Twitter. How is that a rant? <laughs> not rant, a positive rant. Eulogy, I should say. Uh, right, Derby beat Reading in this game. My notes at 40 minutes. I was watching this one on, on Derby Player. Oh, no, sorry, Rams TV, as it's called. Uh, very I hope you're going to expense all of these um, all of these ten pound payments. I hope you're, you know you're keeping a spreadsheet. Cause... Correct. I definitely am. I will be expensing them. Uh, my notes after 40 minutes says entertaining even game with both teams having their moments. Ijaria hitting the post and dancing his way past Derby challenges the highlights so far. Olise exciting. Uh, and then within five minutes it was half time and Derby were tuning up. The first goal a beautiful goal curled in 
beautifully by Tom Lawrence, but just great build-up. Andre Wisdom was allowed to run forward about 40 yards unchallenged, which was questionable tactics from uh, from the Reading midfield. Uh, he played it into, I think, Martin, who played it into Sibley, who laid it back, and, and Lawrence curled in. So really impressive that. Lawrence has improved a lot over the last few months. He's into double figures for goals in the championship this season, which is a good return, uh, albeit for someone who takes that many shots. It is, it's what you expect, or it's certainly what you need. Um, he is also now going to be banned for three games because he got involved with Matt Miazga in one of the aforementioned uh, fights. And normally we'd say handbags because normally you don't actually see much happen in these. But something was in the air this weekend. Like they go at each other three times. The the third the sort of the third and final time, Lawrence goes in head first. Not not strong connection. Don't get me wrong. But he's but he he's there's intent there, shall we say? And Miazga just clocks him. Just clocks him with a little jab around the jaw. And and we should say these are scenes that no one wants to see. I'd like to have <laughs> that. I'd like to have that on record. Um, but yeah, rare, rare to get any semblance of actual violence uh, in football fights these days. So maybe that's going to change. Now, George, Wigan 2, Blackburn 0. Who's the best team in the championship, Derby or Wigan Athletic? Because if you go from the 1st of January, these two teams are the best teams in the division. <laughs> Paul Cook 20, can do nothing all. wrong. Yeah, and I just can't believe they've kept six clean sheets in a row. That is just incredible. I mean, massive credit to Paul Cook. Um, it was quite... I felt a bit... When this game was nil-nil during the second half, and I was looking through the table, and I saw that Wigan was still like three points off, say, three points away from the relegation zone, I just felt very sorry for Paul Cook, because he must be thinking like, what do I need to do just to get some safety and to get some security? And scoring two late goals against Blackburn at home is probably what he needed, because that gap has got a bit bigger. They are picking up points very quickly. Teams are finding it impossible to score against them. Um, and it'll be a big relief to him because I'm sure that there would have been concerns around the club that the break came at a kind of a not an ideal moment for them, given that they were riding the crest of a wave. Their momentum was fully behind them, just to use one of your buzzwords. And um, and they, they've, you know, they've carried on exactly where they left off, being very solid at the back. They've got... Um, attacking players who weren't producing earlier in the season now now doing so and um, yeah all credit to them it's 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 great for 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 Cook who came under pressure earlier this season I mean this is a, a game between two sides who were promoted together a couple of years ago they've both the managers back in October time were under pressure from their fan bases um, and both have done a remarkably good job since then and Tony Mowbray and Paul Paul Cook so big credit to them both and. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to see where this Wigan team goes next season now because, as you say, they've, they've turned themselves into a really effective, really good championship side. I have been listening to what you're saying, but I've also just been... I can't get away from the thought that Koku might be Dutch for Cook. I mean, it's probably not, but Philippe Koku, Paul Cook, it's almost like Philippe Koku's... <laughs> that's like the Dutch translation of Paul Cook's Phil name, Cook. which I'm really excited about. A couple of couple of players to point out in this system. I mean, first of all, it's another manager getting their subs right. He only made three, so he's clearly not that fussed about using all five. Uh, but he but he made the right ones. Evans and Jacobs coming off the bench, and, and they were the ones that scored the two goals in this game. And what I like about Wigan, I think, that makes them stand out against almost every other team in the champ, is they've got two really good, exciting, mobile, attacking fullbacks. I was just going down the table, and almost every team has one 
attacking fullback that you think, yeah, they can they can help produce down the side. With Anthony Robinson, AC Milan's Anthony Robinson, and uh, Nathan Byrne down the right, Wigan have got two flying fullbacks who give them such pace, mobility, and width down the side. And that is so valuable in the modern game because... You know, we should also say they've got Morsi and Williams at the base of midfield who are in really good form, working in tandem and clearly providing really good cover for these guys going forward. But it's so handy to have fullbacks who can stretch the play. It allows you to play, you know, they play 4-2-3-1, but it allows Lowe and in this, in the case of the weekend, Pilkington or whoever comes on and plays in the other wide spot. It allows them space to do damage in in uh, inside areas. And it just, it's got the balance of a really good team when you've got, two players who can impact the game from the full pack position. So I wanted to shout out Byrne and, and uh, Anthony Robinson there. Big part of this Wigan turnaround. As much as the clean sheets are so impressive, especially with Dunkley out injured long-term uh, and Balogun, who had come in from Brighton and been so good, he hasn't played the last two games either. So Danny Fox needs to get some credit. The fourth choice centre-back ultimately coming in and being a part of two clean sheets post-lockdown uh, and Cedric Kipre next to him, who, who's really grown in confidence this season in the same way that the whole squad has. Really impressive I mean, it's a classic. I, I seem to remember last season they had a good second half of the season as well, having looked, uh, having looked uh, worryingly down there. I'm a bit concerned that we're going to overreact to this, predict them to do really good things next season, and then they're going to stink out the joint from August to December <laughs> again. But we'll see. Um, Bristol City, Sheffield Wednesday. We've already, even without getting to this game, we've already had a go at Bristol City. So I don't, I don't know if we need to do too much more of that. I mean, Lee Johnson, he called his team out after last week. Uh, he made seven changes and then his players just didn't defend from corners. Uh, and no Casey Palmer still. Two goals from corners, first from Wickham, second from Luongo. Um, it, it's such a weird one, isn't it? It's such a weird one. No Casey Palmer, as you say. Lee Johnson saying afterwards, we, we, we don't have a player like Barry Bannon. I think the suggestion wasn't so much who can sit deep and spray. It was just someone who can unlock defences. And it's like, well, A, you've got tons of players. You've got almost every type of player in your squad. And you do have someone who can unlock defences in Casey Palmer. But there seems to be some sort of problem with him. Um, but I mean, this is also what I said in, in January about their January business of selling Brownhill and bringing in Wells. In Brownhill, he had, I know it's a different position, but he had a player. He had a progressive passer, albeit from the right-hand side, who could play more centrally. They had that and they sold him to bring in another striker who, you know, obviously scored in Naki Wells. But it was clear at that time they were lacking players who could progress the ball from deep. They weren't creating chances. So to sell, you're one of the only players you've got who can do that, bring in another striker and then a couple of months later to be like, we're lacking a ball playing midfielder is just, I mean, I understand if Brownhill wanted to leave and they sold him to Burnley, but then re replace him. <laughs> You know, get in someone who can do that. And if you're not going to play Palmer, then get in someone else. Yeah, certainly the midfield area at the moment is a huge, huge issue for Bristol City. And it seems to be improving uh, for Sheffield Wednesday. Monk having switched to 3-5-2, uh, straight out the blocks of lockdown with a point against Nottingham Forest in a game that they performed very well. And now this win at Bristol City, I think we've got to mention and give credit to, to Gary Monk. I think... What do you do when you have a three-month gap in a season because of a global pandemic? You've headed into it as, well, a team that we were calling essentially a crisis club, certainly in terms of the performances on the pitch. So much to do at this football club, don't get me wrong, and I'm not going to go too far. But to 
to think to, to basically come up with solutions to use the time to come up with a solution and change the form has got to be you know has got to be mentioned um it looks like it's suiting them well spoke about the fact that it's it's murphy and kadeem harris playing wing backs that's surprising but so far they're performing well uh, wickham's come in the team and scored two and two wildsmith in goal i mean sheffield wednesday's goalkeeping situation the last few years has been so bizarre but wildsmith has made some absolutely magnificent saves and yeah the team working hard the system seems to be suiting them at the moment. It's getting the best out of the aforementioned Barry Bannon. Uh, it's been a bizarre season for Sheffield Wednesday overall because there were times early on when they were playoff bound and all that sort of stuff. And it, it's going to end in mid-table, it looks like. But but fair play and uh, interested to see what you've got next for us, Gary, because you've got a big, big summer coming up, it's fair to say. One of the most impressive post-lockdown teams has been Luton Town, George. Um, when we did an Insta Live talking about Nathan Jones and whether he could save them from relegation. I did make the point that their first games were against Preston, Swansea and Leeds, and that with the gap that was already there, it might be sort of over before it started. Not the case. Never count out Nathan Jones in a Luton tracksuit top, because uh, this was a perfect away performance, a magnificent three points against Swansea, another game that ended in a fight. And uh, certainly, the you know, Luton's miracle survival, that is on. It's on. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And it's an incredible start to his second spell in charge. I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I certainly myself didn't see this result coming. Uh, um, I thought the, the early game, the first game, the Preston match that Luton played, they were okay. But there was nothing necessarily, in my view, to suggest that they were going to go in and put in a perfect away performance. But they did. And... All credit has to go to Nathan Jones for that because they're a side who've shipped 72 goals this season. And in his first two games back against two sides with promotion aspirations through the playoffs, they've conceded just one. And that hasn't been particularly lucky either. Um, so for Jones, I think it was important given the the circumstances around his return to the club. It was important to get the fans on side early on because I don't think it would have taken much for the discontent amongst those who haven't forgiven him for when he left to be more vocal but in this instance um, yeah I'm pretty sure any Luton fan who replied to the who tweet announcing Jones's manager with a snake emoji um, I have a, have a feeling they're probably feeling a bit different about their new manager now uh, I mentioned last week that he was straight in with the diamond which we were happy to see but this week switched it up played 4 2 3 1 with Radican Panzu and Glenn Ray sitting, Butterfield more advanced, uh, Cornick stretching the play out wide, and Elliot Lee, who barely got a look in under Graham Jones, but looks revitalised by Nathan Jones. And if you look at some of the quotes from Luton players, I mean, of course, they're going to be positive about the new manager. Um, but there, there's a lot of sort of not-so-subtle messaging about how much better the spirit is around the camp and how he's sort of breathed new life into certain players who had felt marginalised. Um, signs of the fullbacks bombing on now the fullbacks in this side are Pearson and Potts they are not Stacey and Justin but you can see that, that they're, they're going to have a similar role they might not be able to execute things in the final third in quite the same way but that's another theme that's coming back um, and he switched it up actually after 70 minutes to a, to a 3-4-1-2 James Bree came on to play right wing back and um, you know switching up the shape in-game management Izzy Brown came on uh, and provided the the assist for the winning goal for Collins so lots of positive signs there um, it's been really fun chatting to great friend of the pod, Ollie Walker, 
each Saturday afternoon talking through Nathan Jones's Luton Town because I am excited. I'm excited to see how, where it goes from here. They've got a game against midweek, uh, in midweek against Leeds, which you know might be something of a free hit now. But you never know. You never know. This is a resilient Luton, and they've already shown that they can go away to a, a good side and 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 perform well in a defensively sound manner and take a chance as well. Collins is. Collins is. I was glad to see Collins score. He's got twelve in the championship this season. You know, three seasons ago, twenty in League Two with Crawley, then nineteen in League Two with Luton, then twenty-five in League One with Luton, and now twelve in Championship. It's an impressive goal-scoring uh, run for James Collins over the last few seasons. And we have to mention Simon Sluger again, someone that got a lot of stick early on in his Luton career. Uh, the price tag was hanging over him. Their record signing, but boy, has he made some big saves in the first few games back. Uh, Another team down there. Another team who have started well, George. From relegation, from a relegation place to 18th in the space of eight days, Charlton Athletic, two games, two 1-0 wins, two set-piece goals. Who's getting the credit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll let, you, I'll let you blow the smoke this time if you want. A man who will be listening to this, driving to training with a smile on his face, probably devising new set-piece routines as we speak. Johnny Jackson. Uh, who Whilst writing some nice um, song variation of classic pop songs with coronavirus lyrics. Exactly, while writing music. Uh, Lee Boyer gave him credit after the game, uh, basically just putting both the goals that they've scored down to uh, Johnny's hard work with the set-pieces. We know that they can be the greatest of the marginal gains. Uh, teams who are consistently good at scoring from set pieces who make the most out of those opportunities uh, and we're seeing that with the Charlton side who have defended resolutely who kept Eze very quiet this weekend um, well as quiet as you can keep him and um, kept another clean sheet and it was Prattley rather than Pierce this time uh, some players really stepping up and taking charge of the situation which I know for Charlton fans in the context of certain other players not playing in these games deciding that they wouldn't play the first couple of matches uh, is something that they're just so thrilled to see. It's not It's not done. It's not over. They're going to have some games which don't end 1-0 with the set-piece goal uh, and games that are, are marginal like that where they might fall on the other side of it. But a three-point gap has been opened up. It's, it's really impressive. And I'd say that the performances of Josh Cullen uh, since the return will be getting a lot of admiring glances from, um, well from his own club, West Ham, who own him, especially if they get relegated. I could see him playing a part for West Ham next season. Um, but various other clubs as well uh, will be taking note. And a random Charlton fact, Charlton have received 91 red, uh, yellow cards in the league this season, which is the most by miles, but haven't had anyone sent off. One of only two teams with no reds. Now, I don't know what that means. And I'm sure there have been times where someone's been on a yellow and maybe got away with a second yellow, but it's... It sounds like smart management to me. Smart card management. They know how to live on the edge, but not go over the edge. Uh, a great, a, just such a good return from Charlton. Uh, and as we mentioned before, to go from having just dropped inside the relegation zone in the last few minutes of, of your final game pre-global pandemic uh, to, to be told that there's a chance of being relegated on points per game uh, and then to be up in, in 18th after just a few games back is... Uh, his, uh, well, it sums up how difficult that would have been for, for anyone who was relegated uh, on points per game when they were close to safety. George, Birmingham Hull was the sort of crazy game of the weekend. And I can't work out whether to see this as 
a good result for Hull and a positive day for Hull, given that they were 2-0 up, or whether it's just another example of them being a bit rubbish and throwing away a, a lead in a really commanding position. Yeah, difficult this, um, because it's not a bad point out of context, but to be in the position they were in and to throw a 2-0 lead away and then a 3-2 lead away um, was not good. And you know, this is a side who haven't won a, a football match since New Year's Day. So I guess in that sense, it's no massive surprise that they struggled to do to see this one out. It's also of significant importance that they were at some times able to put in a performance that was good enough to see them two goals clear or even back to 3-2 up as well, which is progress in some sense. I can't really work out for the life of me why Grant McCann made all five substitutions by the 77th minute. Um, that just seems, especially when you've got a side who haven't really won a game of football for for six months and you've got a, a team who have put you in a position to do so, I don't know why you would just change half of it with 15 minutes to go. Also, not really enabling you to make any more changes once the equaliser came in as well. Um, yeah, I was, that's but, what I was going to say. I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and say it, but <clears throat> especially with the added two subs, with five up your sleeve, yeah, it gives you the option, which you often don't feel like you have, of holding one back in case you need to make a very late change because the situation of the game has changed. For example, when you're trying to defend a lead, you know you, you might have to take off an attacking player to bolster the back line or vice versa uh, if you need a goal. And it feels like keeping one in in the slot, shall I say, seems like a smart idea. That's, that's not what he did there. Um, it was interesting to see Scott score on debut. James Scott, who they signed from Motherwell, who's highly rated in... in um, in Scotland, he's only 19 years old and he picked up an ankle injury almost immediately after joining. So he didn't play at all this season, um, but he came off the bench against Charlton and then he started uh, on the weekend, scored a nice header. Uh, I haven't seen a huge amount of him, so I, I can't even tell you exactly what kind of player he is. But uh, there he was popping up early on and getting a goal on his full debut. De Silva Lopez was another real uh, positive player, positive performance for Hull uh, in this game, showing a lot of energy and a lot of quality on the ball, which is something that we've sometimes questioned with him, whether his quality on the ball is good enough to be, you know, for example, to impact games at the top end of the championship. But he had a really good game here. Uh, and for Birmingham, it was Jeremy Bella who came on. And as he's done quite a lot this season, um, you know, had an impact on that team and give them, a little, give them a little spark, a little bit of energy, a little bit of quality and some good delivery as well. For, for Birmingham... You know, it feels that they're going to finish mid-table. They're one of the teams that seem to be, whose season seems to be somewhat sort of petering out. It does mean that hopefully they're going to be involved in c complete chaos games like this uh, without much to play for. But two really interesting questions over the next few months for Birmingham. We're recording this on the day that Jude Bellingham turns 17. How much money are they going to get for Bellingham this summer and where's he going to go? But then the two big questions are, who is going to be their manager moving forward? And will they make the right appointment? And two, will they spend that money well? Because with the windfall that we're expecting them to get for Bellingham, it's the sort of money which, if spent well, can help elevate this team to the next level and even to the top level in, in championship terms. If they get the recruitment right, they can sort themselves out in the in the sort of, not just the short term, but the mid to long term as well here, which is not always something we've associated with Birmingham City Football Club recently. So um, I, I'm, I've I've already sort of, got my heart in my mouth to see where they go with this because I'm not sure I've got that much faith in the people in charge to, to do it correctly, but it's a great opportunity for them um, to do that. And then...
Barnsley and Millwall drew nil nil. George, that was that was less exciting. That probably needs less. Uh, that needs less analysis, other than to say that when you've backed Jake Cooper at forty to one, and you watch a team have ten corners and ten free kicks, and Cooper go up for every single one and not end up heading one in, uh, it's uh, it's pretty frustrating. A bit like your uh, Brentford one nil. Uh, nervousness um, what I would say interestingly from a Barnsley perspective is that in the last 10 games they've scored 8 and conceded 8 uh, only 16 goals in total in Barnsley's last 10 league games which is completely the opposite of the general perception <clears throat> of this Barnsley team which is like rock and roll high press leaky at the back but score loads of goals so uh, Struber has tightened things up considerably um, and that's that's all championship wise uh, we've mm. we've massively overrun George, but people would I'm have exhausted. people would have stayed to the end to hear <clears throat> a little preview of the League Two playoff final. Um, we're gonna do a longer review podcast separate tomorrow morning, which will be released on Tuesday morning. But who do you expect to be promoted to League One this evening at Wembley? It's difficult this because if I take <clears throat> everything that I know about the sides over the course of the whole season, what I think are the two managers, who I think are the better team, then I would say Exeter. But after watching the games last Monday night, I just can't really shake that that cobbler's performance. I can't. If they if they come out of the blocks, and it's also important to remember that, that it was only Owen Evans who stopped Northampton making a pretty decent impact at six fields as well. Yeah. Not just the, not just the penalty save, but they you know created plenty of chances, and he had to put in a hell of a performance to keep them out. So over two games, but it was just the intensity and the way that they approached that game. I mean, our, normally we see playoff finals being pretty cagey, not very good spectacles. I, I have a feeling tonight's going to be very different because you'd have to assume that the game plan for for Northampton will be exactly the same. You have to assume that it's going to be right. We are going to put it right up them and see how they like it. And um, and if they do, then I think they've got a great chance. We saw also um, the the switch to to two up top with the physical presence of Alex Fisher for Exeter. I reckon they'll probably do the same as well, which will mean it's going to be pretty attritional from both sides. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. If I had to say, this is one of those like where last season I was saying that Charlton were going to win the playoff final right the way through till we did the preview the night before, and then I said Sunderland were going to win, and <laughs> was annoyed with myself. But I mean, I do, yeah, I, I think. If this match was taking place in March, I would say that Exeter would would be my pick to win it. But I just think that if they can, if if Northampton can come in tonight with the same intensity, the same just willingness, and and you know that they just didn't give Cheltenham a sniff until the last ten minutes, where even then they kind of kept them pretty much at bay. Um, then I think we might finally see Keith Curl get his first promotion. And I guess maybe the desperation of Curl, age 56, to get his first promotion. I mean, he's, he's now talking about getting a Premier League job, which uh, is, is kind of quite baffling. But I guess it's, it's that desperation and that desire to, to finally do it, which is maybe rubbing off on his players because they were very impressive indeed. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing another 90 minutes of Callum Morton running around like an absolute lunatic. Uh, I'm upset because I really thought that you were going to make the case for Exeter and then I was going to come in looking quite clever and say why I thought Northampton were going to shade it. Uh, and then you just did a whole bit on why you thought Northampton were going to shade it. Um, it's it's <laughs> Look, it's one of those where the headline after this discussion will be we've both picked Northampton to win, but really dig a little deeper. And I think 
what we're saying is it's going to be very, very tight. It's going to be very marginal. Um, and I, I, I just agree. I think like, I think, I, I just think the energy of Morton makes such a difference because look, Verdane Oliver is hugely unsung here and he had a fantastic game and he was a big part of that turnaround against Cheltenham and Morton got all the headlines. But I think between them, they just are going to cause the Exeter back line so many problems. The delivery of Nicky Adams is just on point. Um, all of what I say about Northampton can apply to Exeter and they had to play a very different way against Colchester who were a completely different prospect. But it just makes me think that Northampton will have already played this game twice against Cheltenham, if you know what I mean, with the similar uh, with the similar formations, the 3-5-2, with a similar style of play where Exeter can mix it up. They can be technical, but they can also go long. Northampton have had recent experience, post-lockdown experience of playing this type of game twice, whereas I think Exeter had a very different game against Colchester and will now have to adapt their game plan in order to take on Northampton. So I'm expecting Northampton to, to edge it. But I would not be surprised if we see extra time and pens. Cannot wait for that. Please, please, as we said at the top, please choose to watch this game, guys. If you're a championship fan or a League One fan and you don't watch much League Two football, please choose this over the Premier League. Um, we, you know, we, we try not to go too big anti-Premier League because it would be slightly disingenuous of, of us to do that. But um, honestly, if you can't watch the game of football where there's more, where there's just so much riding on it, where the the agony and the ecstasy to coin Richard Foster's book title uh, of the playoffs is just, it is everything. Uh, it's going to be tense. It's going to be cagey. It's going to be exciting. Get involved with that, and we'll be releasing a pod tomorrow morning reacting to it. Uh, thanks for bearing with us today. So much to get through at the moment, but as we said at the top of the show, we're now looking at every single midweek having a round of fixtures for the next four, uh, and therefore things are going to move very, very quickly. So, um, Strap in, keep joining us, make sure you're subscribed so you get all of our pods when they drop. Um, thanks to those who sent kind messages after the betting show. We needed a good performance and, and we both pulled uh, some nice long price winners out of the bag. So really, really positive signs there. Stick with us this week and thank you for listening and uh, we'll talk again tomorrow morning.